0: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're plugging into the country's clean energy markets and how they are funded. Renewable power has been growing quickly and now accounts for one-fifth of electricity generated worldwide, according to the International Energy Agency. Getting away from fossil fuels for transportation has been a tougher slog. Batteries for electric cars remain expensive, and biofuels using inputs that don't compete with food have been slow to develop. Yet looking at the recent freak weather, biblical floods, epic droughts, fires, melting ice caps, uh, the imperative of delinking carbon pollution from economic growth is stronger than ever. Over the next hour, we'll discuss financing and building a clean energy future with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to be joined by three experts – John Bond is CEO of the Renewable Energy Trust. He also is a former CEO of Moody's Investor Services and a former chairman and CEO of the Export Import Bank of the United States. Dennis McGinn is president of the American Council on Renewable Energy in Washington, D.C. He is a retired Vice Admiral in the United States Navy, where he commanded the Third Fleet in the North Pacific should also mention he's a member of the Climate One Advisory Council. Clint Wilder is author of Clean Tech Nation, How the U.S. Can Lead in the New Global Economy and is a senior editor at Clean Edge, a research and global online publishing firm. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Admiral McGinn, let's begin with you. Uh, I know you're a grandfather, so uh, if you were to characterize the clean energy economy, would it be an Olympic athlete in tip-top physical condition? Would it be an adolescent kind of finding its way, and identity in the world? Or would it be a toddler just learning how to to, to uh, go from crawling to walking?
1: I'd say somewhere between uh, a toddler and an adolescent, maybe uh, third or fourth grade uh but speaking about toddlers, uh, I want to go back to what you said about some of the things that are happening. About two weeks ago, I was in Denver with my one of my granddaughters, two and a half years old. We are at the Denver Zoo. And as we're walking those wonderful pathways, seeing these terrific uh, animals, well cared for, it suddenly occurred to me, am I ever glad that Noah believed in climate change? And not only that, but he had a nice adaptation strategy, and if he hadn't done that, uh, he, uh, he, we wouldn't be at the zoo seeing all those wonderful animals.
0: Great. Well, um, John Bond, is there enough money for clean energy investments and they're just looking for the right projects and matching up, or is there not enough money getting into the system for clean energy?
2: Two different questions. Uh, there's plenty of money around looking for ways to get into the clean tech business. The problem is that it's, if you like, messed up, because there is an intersection between the regulatory process and the investment process. Much of what has happened um, over the last few years is a creature of government. It's a creature of policy. It's a creature of want-to-be. It's the normative approach to the world. We want to be clean tech. We want to have uh, – we're concerned about climate change. We're worried about all of that stuff. And therefore, as a matter of government policy, we have created all these incentives. What the government gives, the government also takes away. And money is nervous. Uh, it w- goes where it's welcome. Uh, so we have, on the one hand, a whole series of important incentives moving us in the in the clean tech direction. At the same time, there's a basic distrust of relying on government policy when you're investing money. And that's the big dilemma that's going on now. If you have a an incentive that is... Uh, one- or two-year incentive, or if something's going to change, or if the debate gets into the political arena, particularly the part- partisan arena, money just says, well, we'll wait till this gets sorted out. So part of it's a question of, of, of structure, but part of it's a, this this struggle for clarity on the part of investors. So we have a third grader with lots of money in their pockets. That's what we've got so far.
0: Uh, Clint Wilder, uh, you want to comment on that in terms of the inevitability of this? Is there money waiting on the sidelines? Uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. there is. I want to go back to, Greg, what you said at the beginning about delinking carbon pollution and economic growth. That's sort of at Clean Edge and in our book, Clean Tech Nation, we kind of spin that around and say uh, developing clean tech, non- non-carbon or less carbon technologies, is critical. To economic growth for our nation or any nation as we move forward, so it, it's th- this this false choice of environment versus economy. Uh, you know, we're still fighting it in the political and partisan arena for sure. But that's we're, we're kind of on the on the bandwagon to try and say, look, these are the the critical industries of this century. The nations and companies and regions that lead them uh, are going to be economic leaders as well as moving clean tech forward. So having said that um, yeah I think there is a lot of money on the sidelines as as John was just saying in this in the political season there's there's a lot of wait and see uh but we we think there are a lot of uh potential uh new innovations in in financing both public private or a combination of the two That can really move this forward, and I think we'll probably get into that into some of that in the discussion. If I I could comment
1: briefly on something that uh, Clint touched on, and that is, I think behind the uh, the psychology of those who would deny climate change or or doubt it seriously uh, is this belief that it's a zero sum game. I can either have uh, you know a a healthy environment locally, regionally, or, or globally, or I can have a good quality of life and environment, especially in this country. And the fact of the matter is that uh, you can have it both ways. In fact, it's a triple win because it's a win for the environment, it's a win for the economy, and it's a win for quality of life. And we're we're proving this in in the investments and uh, the growth in renewable energy. Everybody loves electricity, but not too many people want to live five miles downwind from a coal-fired power plant. But we're saying – There are alternatives. We can still have all the electricity we need used wisely and efficiently, but we can get it in ways that we couldn't before because of the scale-up of renewable energy.
0: And let's talk about where some of that, that growth and that generation is happening uh, Alaska has seen uh, green jobs, and I'm not sure exactly how they define green jobs. Sometimes that's very <laughs> expansively. Yeah. A person who drives a bus powered by natural gas is sometimes considered a green job. But Alaska's green jobs went up 98% from 8,000 to 16,000. Wyoming, 53% from 4 to 6,000. Nebraska from 10,000 to 15,000. These are red states with real job growth because of clean energy. And yet we don't seem to hear about that in our political debate, which makes us think that uh, if you listen to the national political debate, you wouldn't think that there's real green jobs in red states. John Bond?
2: Well, I think that's fair. Um, Again, going back to this this partisan exercise, you have two circumstances. One, you have the uh, debacle of Wall Street 2008, which has created monumental distrust, as far as the people are concerned, with Wall Street financial techniques, investment bankers all of that there is a real if you want antagonism out there to money sources people who are playing in the money in the money business the second part of it is even more i think troublesome the parties particularly the democrats and the republicans have have talked themselves into this either or thing that, that Dennis was talking about you can't have real environmental protection because what it'll do, it's matter of national security, it's all of those kinds of things. And the answer, I think, is, hopefully we'll get to this when the political season is over, I think the answer is different. I think the answer is you can have both, but what we fail to focus on is the time element. You can't get there from here in a decade or two. These are huge transformational forces. You've got our own national security. You're talking about you need affordable, um, reliable energy. So the debate says, well, we can't have that if it's just re- just renewables. True enough, there will always be a place for, in my judgment, uh, combined cycle engines and all of that kind of thing. But our task is not to go from A to B instantly. Our task is to modulate that transition over a couple of decades so we preserve the good part, of our electrical system and our power generation, at the same time moving to a better part and an increasing contribution from that part.
3: That's the the time
2: thing that's the problem.
3: On the green jobs in red states that you were talking about, that is absolutely happening. And I think there's no better example than the wind power industry um, where you see – if you take the debate out of the inside the beltway, you know, the Capitol Hill fights and – you look at the number of Republican governors who are supporting this critical uh, incentive for wind called the production tax credit, which is in jeopardy right now. Uh, so they're they're differing from their party and their uh, party's presidential candidate on this issue. Uh, but the governors of Kansas, Iowa, North Dakota, so on down the line, um, they know what what the wind power industry means to, to their states. Iowa is the second most, uh, productive wind state behind Texas, another red state. Uh, it, South Dakota, which has a smaller, uh, overall energy demand, gets 22% of its, all its electricity from, from the wind. Uh, so again, as I say, these are, this is not about tree hugging and, uh, Birkenstocks. Uh, this is, the, these are, uh, real jobs, often, uh, both installing, but also manufacturing the wind components. So, you know, the <clears throat> kind of the, the – at least politically, the holy grail of American manufacturing jobs, uh, the w- wind power industry is is making that happen, and almost all of it is is in these red states.
1: This uh, third or fourth grader we're calling the clean energy economy transition, uh, you know, knocks things over and uh, creates a little turbulence, and John is exactly right. It's uh, not uh, whether – a question of if, it's a question of, of when and how fast – and uh, we've got to try to figure out ways, the right kinds of policies, investments, technologies that uh, that try to smooth out that, that transition, that turbulence. But there will always be turbulence, and, and uh, change usually doesn't have a big constituency. My wife uh, has a wonderful uh, cross-stitch sampler that says, when God closes one door, he al- always opens another. It's just hell in the hallway.
2: <laughs> and uh, the, he- the hell in the hallway
1: is uh, this turbulence of change going from uh, what has been a very, very vibrant economy, has made uh, the United States the world leader, uh, based on, uh, in large measure, of fossil fuel. And we're going- we are going to a clean economy. We're just uh, looking for that uh, next door to open a little wider.
0: everyone, McGinn, you had a national association based in Washington. Are these state voices heard in Washington, these governors where the job growth is happening, or do they just get, does that just get lost in the, in the mud and the muck and the swamp of Washington?
1: No, I think, I think it really is um, being listened to in, in various ways. You don't hear that in public pronouncements because of the, the campaign season and the, the rhetorical uh, firebombs that are being being thrown. But I think that uh, quietly to uh, key uh, members of uh, energy committees or perhaps tax committees, uh, especially given the uh, the gravitas of a governor that is seeing the benefits of wind energy or solar energy or or any other form of renewable energy, uh, saying to a chairman or certainly to their their delegations in Congress that represent their states, we really, really need to uh, continue the production tax credit, for example. We're losing jobs, and we'll continue to lose jobs uh, until uh, until we have some sort of stability, the stability that uh, that John mentioned about you really do need to create long-term visionary uh, policy that invites money or creates market certainty so that it lowers uh, the reality and the perception of risk in the minds of investors. And the the, the, the frustrating thing is there's literally tens of billions of dollars of investment capital that are waiting on the sidelines looking for the right opportunity to invest in this clean energy economy, but uh, they're, they're so afraid in many cases that government policy will pull the rug out from under them by changing a mandate or changing a tax policy or changing some other aspect of government involvement.
0: We had uh, Jim Rogers, CEO of Duke Energy, here say that the political cycles are two years, four years, six years, and yet investment mm-hmm. cycles for energy are, are are twenty years, forty years, sixty right. years. So the exactly capital right. cycles and the political cycles don't line up, no matter who's in power.
2: Right. So that's exactly.
0: a structural impediment to getting this thing done, John. Barr?
2: It's got it's got part to, partly to do with that, but it's got also partly to do with this. I would argue, futile search for a national energy policy. We spent a lot of time and a lot of rhetoric and a lot of money trying to develop a national energy policy. The real policy leadership has come from the states, to to Clint's <clears throat> point, and a lot of it has come from people like Mike Peavy at the PUC here in, in California. At the same time, we've moved forward uh, in, this, in this policy in, in the area of renewable portfolio standards and all the kinds of things that give – renewable incentives uh, and the industry to build and develop. At the same time, we in California have empowered everybody to stop everything. So what we have is, on the one hand, the the policy initiatives that are moving forward, I think, principally, again, at the state level, but in this excessive democracy, if you like, um, and are out of a real concern that something might go wrong, uh, it costs a lot of money to do simple tasks in California in pursuit of renewable energy. Sounds
0: like you're supporting Governor Brown's proposal to revise the <laughs> California Environmental Quality Act.
2: Well, yes, indeed. And I hate to say that as a card-carrying Republican, but <laughs> the, uh, the answer is yes. What we have done is to create the ability of people to abuse what is a, a truly, I, I think, innovative and important piece of legislation. And the abuse takes the form in uh, the reluctance of trial judges to dismiss frivolous complaints. You can almost always get a superior court judge to let the complaint be heard, which stops everything, which costs the developers money. Uh, and, and, and years go by with frivolous attacks on a, a project, and there is no mechanism by which you can resolve the issues in a reasonable amount of time there's a lot of money that's around and has been spent in wasted energy, wasted energy, wasted time. The the Environmental Act is an important piece of legislation. It's been badly abused, continues to be badly abused. And the problem is you can't ever get final resolution so that you can do something.
1: It sounds to me like we need a cap-and-trade program. We need to put a cap on the number of graduates of law schools and, tra- and trade trade them into electrical engineers.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Try getting that through a legislature full of lawyers. But okay, uh, Clint Wilder. Yeah, um,
3: well, as a card-carrying environmentalist, I'm going to agree with John on this. Uh, Should I back it, out of the way <laughs> <laughs> uh, And And because th- th- this conflict, I, I think, you know, what we're, we're referring to is – siting uh, solar plants or wind farms in possibly sensitive habitat areas and that kind of thing, where you actually have the traditional environmentalist community and the clean tech development community at, often at odds. And I think you need to step back and look at the big picture. I mean, it, it, we're talking about a, a big solar plant can, that can replace many, many megawatts of fossil fuel power uh, to make some impact on reducing carbon emissions. I mean, if we don't get carbon under control, there isn't going to be good habitat for any species. So, you know, I, I think that we have to, like, transform these, these debates of the past of, oh, it's a big project. We as environmentalists need to oppose it and then look at that big big picture on the, the entire environment of the planet.
0: Let's talk about natural gas, which is changing the energy landscape for both renewables, nuclear, coal, everything. How is that cheap natural gas, which today uh, is under $3 per million BTU. No one expects it to stay there, but everyone's kind of anxious. It could go lower. Uh, let's talk about how that's impacting. Is it really pulling the rug under uh, renewables? You jump on. you said earlier you thought maybe the government would do it. Cheap natural gas is doing just as much to undercut energy there.
2: I think that's right. Um, we got lucky in this one. Uh, we suddenly discovered that uh, we have all this natural gas, and the market has not yet a chance, had a chance to equilibrate. We will, I suspect, in the not-too-distant future, begin to export natural gas. The global markets will begin to equ- equilibrate, and the price of natural gas will go up. I don't know. I've heard estimates from 4 to $6 as a kind of a stability figure, you know.
0: In Asia, it's in the high teens, mid-teens. Yeah. yeah. So
2: you can see the draw of exporting Natural gas to places like Asia, it is it is impeding if you want the, the the renewable development. It slowed it down some because people are asking the same kinds of questions uh, that you were asking. Nonetheless, I think we've passed the stage where the certainly the people who stayed in California, but I would argue. Um, the people in the United States. We passed the stage where the question is should we do renewables, should we not do renewables. It's really now what kind of renewables, how fast can we do it, um, and do we and to what extent do we need government support? Because at the end of the day, government support is taking the money out of one taxpayer and giving it to somebody else.
0: John Bond is the CEO of Renewable Energy Trust. Our other guests today at Climate One are Dennis McGinn, President of the American Council on Renewable Energy, and Clint Wilder, author of Clean Tech Nation. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Admiral McGinn, you're head of an organization for renewable energy. Natural gas is not renewable. It's a fossil fuel. Do you right. support development of natural gas, even though it's cleaner than coal?
1: I do, uh, to a point. It, it ought to really be uh, the transition fuel that we always envisioned it to be. Uh, it's certainly got a lower, uh, uh, greenhouse gas footprint significantly than, uh, than coal. And, uh, I think it can operate in a very synergistic way with renewable energy. Uh, it can come on and off in terms of firming electrical power much more quickly than uh, coal-fired or even nuclear plants that you have to effectively boil water, turn it to steam, and it takes a while to heat it up and cool it down. But you can dispatch uh, natural gas uh, produced electricity a lot faster, and that's good for dealing with intermittency issues with wind or solar, for example. On the other side of it, you have this wonderful cost of fuel for renewables, which is effectively zero, that is a great hedge about any type of price volatility or inevitable price rise over the next 5, 10, 20 years. So if you put yourself in the position of a regulator or a a regulated utility, you know, I I don't think too many of them are going to uh, make a bet for a power purchase agreement of 20 years that we're going to see sub $5 an MCF uh, gas prices for that whole time. So it's nice to have this synergistic mix where you do have a hedge the other, uh, I guess, in addition to the, the likely export of natural gas that's going to drive up the cost is that we are converting to uh, from coal to natural gas for power production. In the Northeast, we're seeing a conversion from uh, home heating oil to natural gas. The price differential on a BTU-to-BTU BTU basis is six to one, so it really makes a lot of economic sense to to do that. We're going to see a slight increase in the cost of producing and delivering natural gas because of uh, concerns about methane leaks for example the water challenge of uh, of hydraulic fracturing is significant especially in the western part of the United States and there's there's some infrastructure things to be dealt with in terms of gas pipelines the tragedy in December of 2010 down in San Bruno is an example of w- we need to make sure that we are making investments in this in this uh, commodities uh, distribution. But bottom line, I believe that natural gas and renewables can, in fact, uh, help each other and help us all in terms of delivering cleaner power than what our present portfolio is and to do it in a much less expensive way.
0: But as a bridge to the future, how long is that bridge? Once companies and states put a lot of infrastructure into natural gas, it's hard to get off that bridge when you've got jobs and capital that are right. invested in what is then the status quo. Right. So some have said that's a bridge to nowhere. Or, sure. it, you know, uh, Clint Weiler? But, or, but
3: as Admiral McGinn was saying, um, they, they really do pair well together. So with Clean Edge, we really see natural gas and renewables growing together uh, for for a while, um, and, it, for example, the, I think the largest natural gas plant uh, in Florida by FPL has a big solar component as well. So that, that, that kind of solar shines during the day, and then the natural gas, uh, you know, is, is on as well, but fills in where, where the solar can't, can't produce. I've, I've uh, visited
1: that plant yeah. in Florida, and it's exactly what it does. It, mm-hmm. uh, basically, you have the option of uh, best-value, least-cost choices and we're starting to see this uh as we start to uh get mi- microgrids of uh what are effectively the so-called smart grid where you have multiple sources of power generation on a on a grid you can make choices about uh, what's uh, is the sun shining the wind blowing is the biomass producing or do we need to use n- uh, natural gas or another form of electricity and you can also do better balancing of the load versus the uh Power generation uh, to to manage uh, load in a way that uh, doesn't affect quality of life or economic productivity.
3: And a, a, another thing about that that I've noticed since the natural gas boom, if you will, it seems to have knocked out most of this conversation about clean coal, which which I think is a good thing because the the clean coal technology is just not there at all today, and uh, uh, you know it was kind of a, a kind of a, a pipe dream to. To pr- preserve the coal industry, that I, I don't think makes sense. When,
1: when I was uh, a young guy coming up, uh, still believed in Santa Claus. Actually, I still do. But uh, the, if you weren't a good a good kid, you got a lump of coal in your in your Christmas stocking. <laughs> what kind of message was that? I mean.
2: <laughs> Part of the, I think one has to recognize that the traditional structure of the public utility is both part of the solution and part of the problem. It's part of the solution because, at least in California, they have been directed to buy and encourage uh, through the Renewable Portfolio There's to encourage investment in, in renewable energy. They've got percentage limitations that they have to meet by certain times. They're also part of the problem because it is a traditionally centrally-directed, uh, monolithic sort of structure. And it is largely the utilities that have a monopoly in addition to delivering electricity in producing PPAs that permit people to develop um, solar energy or, or wind energy.
0: Those are power purchase agreements.
2: I'm sorry, yeah, power purchase agreements. So on the one hand, you have the utility which is pulling the renewable industry. On the other hand, you've, you've given them the power to sort of dictate the terms on which – uh, that will take place. We're, we're working our way through a change in the, in the utility model uh, from what it has been traditionally to, uh, among other things, the thing that, that, that Dennis was, was referring to, a series of microgrids, a series of distributed generation capabilities. <laughs> that's a tough thing to do when you have billions of dollars of steel on the ground around a model that's worked very well for a number of decades. Centralized power. Well,
0: one uh, area of innovation uh, around that is uh, community choice aggregation, giving people the choice to get their uh, electricity from different places. That's been tried here in San Francisco. It's happening in other places. Is that something you support, more consumer choice in electricity, John Bond?
2: Well, I have traditionally been quite skeptical of of community choice aggregation. And I've been skeptical not because I don't believe in choice. It's just that I have yet to see – the numbers that, on, a, on an apples-to-apples basis, permit the community choice aggregation system to compete honestly with the, the price at which a public utility can deliver that same power. Um, the jury's out in my mind whether or but if not people
0: this... people want to pay more, could they have that choice, just like they can pay more for a Mercedes than a Toyota or something and, like that? And
2: they can do that uh, through a utility. The Most utilities... Um, we'll say if you want to pay more, uh, PG&E had a program where you could pay $5 more and get green energy. Green energy is simply an allocation of all of the all of the electrons out there. We're going to say this many of those uh, electrons are green, and we take them from a particular power source, and you get some of those. In actuality, it's simply an allocation process. Uh, well,
3: I, I live in Marin County where we have this. Uh, it's called Marin Clean Energy. It's the first large-scale uh Application of the community choice aggregation and it's been very successful so far. The 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 town the, there were three towns that didn't join it at first um, and they have subsequently joined it because it seems like a good deal to them. Um, you can you can pay more if you want, but or or but you you're you're at or in some cases below PG&E uh, prices. And um, now, but it, it, an irony, if you will, is that the. The provider of clean energy to marine Clean Energy is actually a division of Shell Oil. But, you know, this is, but, but, they're aggregating different renewable sources. So, I mean, it's proven. It's a much cleaner mix than PG&E offers. But, you know, it's, it's still, so it's not just, uh, you know, it sounds community choice, sounds like it's gonna be a lot of little things, but it, it's still big energy, but it is, it's, it's clean power sources.
0: Let's talk about the United States military, which has been a key driver, particularly the, the, Na- the Navy Admiral. Uh, but there's been some pushback lately, recently, uh, Secretary of Navy uh, Ray Mabus uh, had a whole carrier group uh, operating on, right. on biofuels, but there was some pushback saying, hey, why is the Navy paying so darn much for these fancy fuels? And uh, so talk about that that sort of pushback sure. against some of their uh, achievement progress.
1: Well, not just the Navy, but the entire uh, Department of Defense and National Security structure. Uh, these leaders think over the horizon, beyond the next quarterly earnings report or the next election cycle, mm-hmm. They're charged with uh, trying to define as best they can the future strategic environment. And what they have concluded is that challenges like climate change and the severe weather that that goes with it, challenges like energy security and the availability of especially uh, petroleum uh, is going to be a challenge. So what they're starting to do is make investments in technologies that will expand the portfolio of energy choices for both electricity on bases and forward-deployed operating uh, bases, as well as for transportation of things that fly in the air, sail on the sea, or move on the ground. And in the case of uh, the Navy, uh, Ray Mabus has been a really visionary leader. He has uh, invested in uh, the testing of drop-in fuels into everything that uh, the Navy operates in terms of, of equipment including the F-18 Super Hornet, uh, flying them on 50 percent blend of uh, biofuel and traditional jet fuel, putting it in ships, and the pushback was, well, gee, this uh, biofuel blend costs a lot more than, uh, it, uh, than just putting in regular fossil fuel. True, and uh, the Secretary of the Navy would be the first to tell you that he does not intend to operate the Navy uh, at those uh, elevated levels of, uh, of fuel purchase prices but that uh, he wants to create the demand signal there for the, an industry that is rapidly growing uh, using a variety of, uh, of uh, feedstocks, including algae, for example, or camelina, uh, switchgrass, etc., and mixing them with great science and technology and coming up with a whole set of, of uh, products, everything from ethanol to, to heavy oil uh, that, that is based on uh, – based on algal oil, algal uh, crude. So uh, the pushback is uh, a very near-term focus. Quickly, historical perspective, every time the Navy uh, has shifted from one propulsion fuel to another, there's been pushback, and it always is the same thing. You change the, the names of the, the members of Congress and uh, the name <laughs> of the, the fuel, but uh, going from, from uh, sail to steam, from wood to coal from coal to oil from oil to uh nuclear and now nuclear and, and 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 oil to uh biofuels and thank goodness that uh over the years uh over the the, the centuries that the navy has prevailed and said we've got to think about our operational capability and that's why not just the navy but all of the services are investing in in uh clean energy it's all about improving their bottom line of operational effectiveness and efficiency, trying to get the most out of every taxpayer dollar that goes to uh, to um, uh, national security.
0: And there's a mission aspect, lives per gallon. Absolutely, too, which uh, all those Absolutely. fuel com- convoys that go up in flames and and in, uh, in, in right. the conflict. Theory. Yeah,
3: and and in terms of funding, this mm-hmm. has actually been one of the big uh, bright spots for the clean tech industry over the past uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, the military is really behind this, and. Has a lot of uh, money to put behind it and to 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 fund uh, emerging technologies. Um, the the Department of Defense is the world's largest user of energy, so we're, we're talking uh, you know big 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 bucks. And and it, and again, and this is as as uh, Admiral McGinn was saying, we've always done this. I mean you, you know, nuclear submarines weren't as cheap as what they were uh, replacing at the time and and there were naysayers. They said, "No, that it's too expensive. It probably you know, we don't know if it's really going to work." So, uh you know, to to have this kind of nickel and diming going on now is is uh disheartening, but again, um historically the uh the, the forces of progress usually prevail. Really
1: well, while the the, 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 the point effect, about about totally. money in in the Department of Defense, one of the things we've talked about at our financial forum uh, right down the street here has been uh, third-party financing where um, we bring in some of this private capital that John mentioned uh, earlier and uh, create uh, uh, public-private partnerships uh, with the Navy or Army Air Force or Marines to uh, bring some of this good investment into it without having to go through a long process. It literally takes five or seven years of uh, setting a requirement for new energy sources for the – Department of Defense running it through the planning programming and budgeting system to finally be approved by Congress at some future future date now the requirement is clear uh and uh and the uh the services are partnering with uh, the private sector to do these uh these uh, uh agreements to get steel in the ground and have the benefits much sooner that than we would otherwise during if we did the old traditional process.
0: And one area is also buildings. We've been talking a lot about uh, planes and tanks, et cetera, but also uh, Pentagon military buildings are a big deal. The, the bases use a lot of energy, and there was some rules saying they have to be lead certified, et cetera. Yes. But even that, there's been some pushback from the industry that doesn't want the government building paying more for lead buildings, even right. though in the long run they save energy.
1: They save a lot of energy, and uh, I think we're seeing this uh, intersection, if you will, of the public and private uh, domains. It can create a very, very nice um, cycle. I call it spin-in and spin-out technology where uh, the, the government or the services will go for whatever relevant technology already exists, commercial off the shelf, and bring it in to uh, do things like flexible solar arrays in Afghanistan for, for patrols. They're not developing them themselves. They're going out there to the recreation and sports industry, and they're seeing some of this, and, hey, it really makes sense for those uh, soldiers and Marines over there in Afghanistan. But also, uh, as Clint pointed out in the case of nuclear submarines, there's spin out. We have GPS today uh, that is ubiquitous in our economy and society because the the Air Force and Navy invested in it many decades ago for narrow military purposes, but it has benefit. Same thing is true of microchips and the internet, and many other examples of this spin out so it 's a nice dynamic public and private investment public and private uh, partnerships that uh, will help the national security. Early on, and then we'll have many economic and social benefits down the road.
0: Dennis McGinn is President of the American Council on Renewable Energy. Our other guests today at Climate One are John Bond, CEO of the Renewable Energy Trust, and Clint Wilder, author of Clean Tech Nation. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about some of the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, some of the new uh, things that could happen to get more money into uh, clean technology. Uh, John Bond, there's uh, something called real estate investment trusts. People might own them in their 401Ks, et cetera. It brought a lot of capital where people could own a piece of a hotel or an office building. It doesn't exist yet for clean energy. Is it going to happen?
2: Well, we think it is. And at the risk of um, delving into a, a promotional exercise, um, uh, Renewable Energy Trust is, uh, at this point, exploring and moving forward to use the r- renewable energy, uh, the real estate uh, investment trust vehicle to harness that in the service of solar PV. If you look back at the REIT industry, the REIT industry, has, which started in the 60s, as, as Greg said, has started out to get a wider participation. People could invest in the real estate market. You didn't have to be a big bank or you didn't have to be a big trust fund. It has evolved over time to be much more flexible vehicle. Our view is that this is the kind of vehicle that will, that will do two important things. Number one, it will provide liquidity in the market. So if people are investing in, in renewable energy, particularly in our case, solar PV, they'll be able to buy and sell. They'll be able to get in and out of the market so you're not locked in. You do, now it's impossible really for John Q. Citizen to invest in the renewable sector. You have to either buy a company uh, or one of those kinds of investments. We think this will provide uh, a whole new investor class uh, for, uh, for renewable, and we think it will bring a, do- a new group that are interested for the kinds of reasons in addition that Clint was talking about. People are prepared to invest. They want to invest in this industry, but they need a vehicle. What we did differently than, than, than others is we started with the REIT analysis, how do these things work? Let's now figure out how to harness that for the benefit of of the solar PV industry. Most people started the other way and got all tangled up in the in the in the clouds of trying to figure out how to do that.
1: There are other mechanisms uh, for bringing more uh, wider spread uh, base of capital into renewable energy. Uh, one is uh, master limited partnerships. There's a master limited partnerships parity Act that was introduced in a bipartisan fashion in both the Senate and the House. The House was just last week and then – By
0: a very conservative Republican. Right, exactly, Mm -hmm.
1: exactly. And uh, so this is uh, yet another tool in the toolbox to try to level the playing field of renewable energy investment. One of the problems we're experiencing right now is – well, it's a myth that renewable energy can't compete on a cost basis. Well, if you start breaking down, what are the elements' costs? You've got material, you've got labor, you've got planning – and you have cost of capital. The cost of capital is artificially high because some of these uh, these REITs and um, and master limited partnership mechanisms aren't available to the renewable energy industry. And uh, cost is cost, whether it's cost of capital or cost of labor or material. And uh, we see that the possibility of a creating a virtuous cycle where if you can get more capital at a lower cost. It lowers the cost of delivered renewable energy, which causes scale up and a reduction in the cost of the technology and material. And it really, really invites more and more. It accelerates that transition to the, to the clean energy economy.
0: And we should say that these vehicles, master limited partnerships have been one of the uh, key vehicles for funding oil and gas exploration exactly. and development in this country. Right. Well yeah,
3: uh, so the final chapter of Clean Tech Nation is called a seven-point <coughs> action plan for repowering America. And two of the seven points have to do with investment vehicles. One is exactly what these gentlemen have been talking about, adapting master limited partnerships and REITs to the renewable energy space. Uh, and the other is create a national green infrastructure bank and there's legislation has been introduced uh, to do this. And the model for this, it's a, to leverage both public and private money, and the model is one that uh, John will be very familiar with, the Export-Import Bank, which you ran for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is, this is not a new concept. Uh, the Export-Import Bank was created in 1934 as part of the New Deal. And we've already seen at least a couple examples at state and local level uh, the state of Connecticut and the city of, city of Chicago, under Mayor Rahm Emanuel, have instituted uh, th- this, this at, a, at a local level. To and, and it wouldn't it wouldn't all be all uh, clean energy, but grid improvements, which is a big part of clean tech, actually for, for smart grid and other forms of you know we we desperately need infrastructure investment and and projects, and that'll create jobs as well.
0: Let's uh, get the audience questions involved here. We're going to uh, put a microphone up here and invite your participation. Uh, again, if you are on this side, please go out that door uh, if you can, uh, rather than crossing this camera here. And uh, the line will start with uh, Sarah or Jane Ann, who are right there. And uh, we welcome your participation and encourage you to join us with one one-part comment or question. As yeah. those
1: questions are being formulated, uh, Greg, uh, something we might want to talk about is the other aspect of our energy lives, and that's transportation energy. Mm-hmm. We talked about it briefly in the context of the Department of Defense, but uh, our, uh, our addiction to oil, while it is being slightly diminished through the uh, the adoption of uh, cafe <coughs> or corporate efficiency. average efficiency, mm-hmm. uh, we uh, we need to expand the uh, the choices of fuel to more electric powered vehicles or plug-in electrics uh we need to have more uh, natural gas uh, uh vehicles at the fleet level if you will delivery mm-hmm. trucks or uh, waste uh, trucks or buses or what have you and uh, to um, every every percent of uh, our transportation energy budget that we take away from oil we're that much more secure and uh, that much more prosperous because we're sending a heck of a lot of money out of our economy to pay for our oil addiction, and that's money that could be used for infrastructure improvements, like uh, Clint mentioned, or education systems, et cetera,
0: and spending a lot of our military to protect those supply routes. Uh, let's have our audience question. Yes, welcome to Climate One.
3: Thank you. My name is Anne DeVero, and thank you very much for your time you know, educating on all of us on all these issues. Uh, my question has to do with policy prescriptions, um, not necessarily financial. Um, which is the topic of this, obviously. But if you had um, your uh, dream, what would be the top three policy prescriptions that would spur the development of renewable energy here in the United States?
1: My, my top, everyone, my top one would be uh, to uh, have a uh, revenue-neutral carbon tax. That would uh, basically help to capture the externalities of each element of our all-of-the-above energy portfolio. And in this case, um, greenhouse gas production of fossil fuels loses every time when you compare it uh, kilowatt to kilowatt or BTU to BTU uh, with, uh, with renewable energy. So by putting in a carbon tax that would uh, you'd be able to rebate, if you will, uh, those who were most affected by that turbulence uh, that it talked about the change from a fossil fuel powered economy to one of uh, clean economy clean energy economy that would be number one number two, if you did that uh, and it, it, it captured uh, in a good way the uh, the fully accounted costs of each form of of energy each element of energy in this portfolio, you could uh, just about eliminate all. Uh, government subsidies for all forms of energy, fossil fuel, renewable, or whatever, and you'd have a much more level playing field in a a free market uh, economy. John, you may have some thoughts about that.
2: Well, we debated endlessly whether or not the carbon tax was the right idea. Its virtue is simplicity. Uh, Having spent the better part of seven and a half years listening to discussions about what to do with the proceeds and having nobody willing to give up their share of it. You get into a whole series of discussions that are the same kinds of discussions that go on in a democracy that is to say which values benefit from that. And I, I guess I come down to slightly differently. I guess I think that the cap and trade system provides two great values. Number one the private sector is given a target that it can deal with and time to deal with it, and the resources. The real way to equilibrate this kind of change, in my view, is to permit the various values to compete in and around a cap-and-trade structure. That's the first thing. The second thing I think I would do would be to, to rewrite uh, the the uh, some of the some of the climate legislation and some of the uh, uh, environmental legislation in and around what I think now is a much more rational consensus. To to, to Clint's point, we've been going through a, a process that can only be described in some cases as zealotry. Zealotry on, on the side of the environmentalists and frankly zealotry on the on the on the part of the uh, of, of of big business and the utilities. I think we're now in a, in a position where we recognize that both of those have values, and I think it would be a wonderful thing if a rational legislature could sit down and actually have the same discussion based on the current understanding and the current players.
3: Probably a
0: oh, rational legislature. Okay, I'm just trying to catch <laughs> that. Okay, yeah. uh, That's uh, the same as clean the, coal. Yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, probably our most controversial policy recommendation in the book is to – Phase out all energy subsidies over the next ten years. So it, the, the subsidies for renewables would go away as they were taken away for oil, gas, nuclear, and uh, all, all the fossil fuels. The the uh, the dominant the the um, unlevel playing field. Uh, it, I mean this MLPs master limited partnerships is a is a great example. This is a vehicle that's open to oil and gas and not to renewables. So it, it, it's talk about a not level playing field. Anyway, we think oh, be, the price of renewables are coming down. Solar, we've seen the dramatic drop recently, um, uh, coming down in a way that if you really took away all the goodies for for all the energy sources, that 10 years out they would compete and and we think beat their fossil fuel counterparts in the market.
0: Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you for coming and thank you for inviting me to talk. Um, so the que- I'm, my name is Gary Latraw. Uh, the question I have is to comment on the concept of
2: having the Federal Reserve provide funding. Right now the uh, Federal Reserve is buying uh, mortgages, which just encourages urban
0: sprawl. Printing money. We're printing green money. Printing yeah. money for <laughs> green projects.
2: I, John the, the Fed is is not equipped uh to be able to do that in my judgment. I would argue that there's some serious concern whether they ought to be doing what they're doing and whether they would in fact be doing what they're doing were it not an election year. Uh, When you get into those kinds of market distortions, it's another concern of private capital. If the Fed is buying mortgages, what's the real price at which I, as an investor, can buy a mortgage? How do I know what price to put on uh, a loan that's going to be secured by a mortgage? When you have these policy interventions, it's really hard for the marketplace and the private sector to, to, to work it out. I just don't think they do it very well, to be honest.
0: Let's have our next audience question. Yes, thanks for that question. Yes, I'm uh, Jerry Fidler. Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, bringing up the military. They're a real leader in uh, in renewables, and they don't get mentioned
2: often enough. Um, and I just want to suggest that one thing that I think could have uh, real impact on, on ability to produce energy and also save taxpayer money is giving the military the ability to, to do longer pr- procurement cycles. One of the issues that they face is um, they're shackled by Congress, often to one, two, three-year procurement cycles, and you need a 10-year offtake to, uh, to finance a plant. It would be easier uh People don't talk about it much, but but it's an easy thing to do, and I think it'd have a huge impact.
1: It's a great uh, great comment, uh, and in fact, there's been progress. So I'm happy to report in the, in this regard. Uh, they've gone back to uh, existing legislative authority in the case of uh, of biofuels, for example, creating uh, commercial offtake contracts that uh, are uh, looking to be as high as 15 years. Uh, they've uh, already. Uh, adopted uh, the idea of uh, power purchase agreements for the three gigawatts of, uh, of, of electrical energy from renewable sources that uh, the department wants to get in place by 2020 and uh, that is really another good thing and it's all about uh, mechanism as you well know to create uh, investor uh, and, and uh, contractor uh, assurance that uh, no kidding this I can and have I can have this uh, long enough time to recoup my investment and and to make some money.
3: I mean, that's a great example of uh, how, as a nation, we really do need to think more long-term than we do. China does it. Japan does it. Germany does it. And uh, we we write about this, how having those kinds of long-term plans in place, whether it's military or, you know, what is our energy future going to be, is really important as we move forward in this century.
0: Let's pick up on the China question Uh, that comes up. We need to touch on that. Long uh, policy cycles, long investment cycles. Admiral McGinn, China recently launched an aircraft carrier, got lots of attention uh, and as a symbol of their growing technological sophistication. How how is China becoming a a, a big player, driving down prices? Are they going to run away with some of the leadership here on clean energy? Well, they
1: have uh, a huge economy. They have a huge population. They've got – I would not – in a thousand years, trade our challenges for theirs. Uh, it really is, it, it's tough. And, uh, they're trying to uh, grow their economy to create jobs. There's a big urbanization push. Uh, they're uh, trying to meet their, uh, their, uh, energy needs in a whole variety of ways. Uh, you need only travel to, uh, to Shanghai or Beijing to experience uh, that rapid growth uh, right in your eyes and lungs uh, it's with, uh, with the religion. smog. It's, yeah. it's incredible. So there are tough challenges. So I think that uh, the, the, the magic is for us to uh, do what the United States does best, which is uh, innovation, invention, education, and to work in partnership with the Chinese to uh, uh, create investment opportunities flowing both ways, technology flow, there's uh, been too much emphasis, I think, in the uh, production of solar modules uh, that uh, are coming in much less mm-hmm. expensively from China. But when you really think about the whole value chain of actually producing solar power, in- including inverters and installation and uh, balance of system, I think that uh, you, you have a, a different take on uh, how we're doing vis-a-vis China. With uh, the production of clean energy. We and need to can be I comment, uh,
2: Can I comment on that? Because it's a, it, I would argue it's a much more complex question than that. You're talking about two different series, two different kinds of economies. I'm old enough to remember when the Koreans uh, put Westinghouse and a number of electronic businesses out of business, where we, because for want of a shorthand, State-sponsored capitalism. That's what the Chinese have been doing. The Japanese did it in the 60s. It does, in fact, deal with a number of highly important policy issues. It's not just as simple as saying whether or not the costs are down or not. It's the question of if you took a macroeconomic approach, the Chinese banks are largely bankrupt if we did an actual analysis of them, They are supported by the government along policy lines. And when you start talking about planning, that is, I would argue, a viable alternative method of moving to where you want to go for a time. And my Republican friends disinherit me when I say this. But the real world is China has done this for a particular series of reasons. They, like the military in our country, can actually make a decision – democracies have a tough time in accommodating different choices. And there is now a very active discussion worldwide about whether the China model is the one that developing countries ought to use or whether it's the American model. That debate and the intensity of that debate did not exist 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Thank you, John Bond. Uh, let's have our next audience question. Welcome, sir. Hi. Uh, you mentioned in terms of innovative financing structures the possibility of using – like a REIT or a master limited partnership type of structure to to finance uh, the clean technology space, do you envision this uh, geared towards any particular uh, subset, like um, towards residential, uh, purchase of residential systems where they'd have some sort of power purchase agreement, or do you envision this for larger type of implementations or across a vast – I think it
1: could apply uh, at many different levels, residential, uh, whether it's aggregated or a company that was doing a whole – series of, of residences, commercial level, think big box stores, for example, and, and also at the utility level. The whole point is to try to get more investment capital at a lower cost into the renewable energy, uh, transition. And I think, uh, ways in which we can do that are going to be, uh, be made more possible, hopefully, after this, uh, political season ends and we start going from politics to policy, and advancing the business of, of clean energy.
2: Just a, a, comment, a comment on that. The models that relate to financing um, residential are really different from financing utility scale and and um, industrial commercial. In the case of real estate, that is, is based on rooftops. You aggregate a whole lot of those, and the credit decision is made on the diversification. And that's what you hear when you hear people talking about securitization. You take a whole bunch of receivables. They could be credit card receivables or any other kind of receivables. That's one way to get into the market through, secure, through a securitized structure. What we're talking about is commercial and industrial and utility scale, and that requires an underwriting of each project. That's more complex. Uh, it relates to bigger numbers in terms of production of, of, of megawatts and the rest. Both of the, the MLP and the, and, and, the REIT structure, I would argue, are better designed to deal with the big numbers and securitization, which is again a proven technique. We did it at Moody's, you know, 25 years ago, um, is probably where, uh, the rooftop is gonna go at least first.
0: Makes me nervous when you say securitization based on some recent history. Um, th- the, uh, another thing I'll mention is that there's some people trying to get crowdfunding into local, uh, Local, uh, rooftop solar projects. So use, you can invest 25, 50, 100 dollars into local projects. And there, uh, one firm here, Solo Mosaic, recently re- received a regulatory approval to sell that kind of investment, uh, to, to small investors to broaden the funding base and get, p- give people more funding options. Let's, we got a few minutes left here. Let's, uh, let's address something that was touched on earlier, the myths about green energy. What are the myths about green energy that you'd like to address that you think are, are off base? One of the uh, one of the
1: assets that we have deployed, uh, beginning in June at uh, at Acor, with about 30 uh, content contributing partners uh, in renewable energy space, is a wonderful uh, website called EnergyFactCheck.org, and if you're uh, a Twitter follower, it's at uh, EnergyFactCheck. It is. Uh, Fact-based, business-oriented and nonpartisan, but we take on some of these misinformation things, the political football aspects of renewable energy. We're trying to uh, do things like put Solyndra in a, in a really broad context, not to say it was a good thing, but to say it was something that happens when you have a very dynamic, growing new business and new industry. We try to take on myths like uh, renewable energy is entirely dependent upon uh, government investment or that renewable energy won't uh, scale, or that renewable energy will always be too expensive. And we just put it out there with really objective facts, sources, and everything. So uh, it's intended for journalists. It's intended for staffers at the, at the state and federal level. It's a really good asset to really tell people uh, the truth about renewable energy, and it is a good story. Those facts indicate a very healthy, vibrant, growing industry not one without uh, challenges but but one that is is unbelievably better than what you hear in the uh, political airwaves
3: i, I think but my no, my number one myth is is that uh clean energy can't scale i think uh you know i mentioned states getting 15 20% of their uh power ju- just from wind uh there was a um one weekend in may in germany they got 50% of all their power from solar uh, and that's uh, Germany. Not everyone knows this. Germany, not the sunniest spot on Earth, is the world's <laughs> largest market for solar power. And they had one particularly sunny weekend. And so it, it just shot up to half the half the, the country's power from solar. Uh, and, you know, we, we see this. It, it's just growing uh, all over the place. Um, a,
1: and, and, a bit of irony, Clint. Uh, Germany's best solar footprint is not as good as America's worst. Right. If you draw a line across yeah. the latitude, you come out about to Hudson's Bay up in uh, up in <laughs> Canada. Mm-hmm. And I've been threatening my friends in Florida to uh, outlaw the uh, Sunshine State until they get serious about <laughs> solar power. Right. Exactly.
0: But but it Germany shows you
1: what policy you can do.
0: Germany paid uh, price, price for Huge that. Price. Huge price. John Bond, uh, but the government and they created an industry and a powerhouse, and they paid dearly for it. John Bond.
2: Well, not only that, but it, it almost brought down the Spanish government, the same kind of, of, of sort of diving in uh, head first. Uh, my, my myth is that Republicans don't support renewable energy. Um, and somehow the political season has produced the fact that it's the Democrats and the liberals who promote renewable energy, and the Republicans are all hung up on oil and gas and all of that stuff. I'd like to get rid of that myth because what we're really talking about is, is time and how to get it done and the the excessive uh, verbiage on both sides as I ha- have, I think, clouded the issue rather than helped. And so I'd like to get rid of the, that myth. Well,
0: how about on climate science? Is it a myth that Republicans doubt and challenge climate
2: science? Well, some Republicans and even some Democrats challenge the science. I don't think that the Republican Party or the Republicans or the Democrats doubt the science.
0: Well, Mitt Romney's walked it back, and he certainly is not saying things that he did when he was governor of Massachusetts. It's very different now.
2: Well, this is the silly season, you know. <laughs> wait, till, wait till we change. We've just got to
0: change the etch-a-sketch, and um, it'll, it'll right. be back on board. But, but uh, Admiral McGinn, Lisa Murkowski, Republican senator from from Alaska, obviously a big extraction state. She wrote a very nice thing about you when you took your new job at, at president of the American yeah. Council on Renewable Energy. She's from an oil and gas state. Where is she on this renewable energy?
1: She is, I think, uh, the embodiment of all of the above. She's got a good, balanced approach. Uh, she is a ranking member on the uh, Senate Energy Committee. Uh, she's got good common sense, experience-based. So uh, we really enjoy working with uh, with Senator Murkowski. I was in Alaska in uh, in April. Uh, they've got some great opportunities. They have a, they pay a tremendously high cost of uh, of energy, both for for uh, gasoline at the pump as well as electricity, especially in some of the remote villages. Yet at the same time, they've got unbelievably good assets for renewable energy, whether it's a microhydro or wind or even solar half the year is pretty darn good. And uh, so in tidal currents. So I see uh, Alaska as being one of those states that uh, has all of the above potential, and uh, they're well represented by Senator Murkowski.
3: On on the Republican point, uh, one of the uh, most powerful voices uh, advocating for the elimination of subsidies is George Schultz very, very prominent Republican.
0: Let's have to – we have to end it there. Our thanks to our our guests today at Climate One talking about renewable energy and finance. John Bond is CEO of the Renewable Energy Trust. Dennis McGinn is president of the American Council on Renewable Energy and a retired – Vice Admiral of the U.S. Navy, and Clint Wilder, author of Clean Tech Nation, How the U.S. Can Lead in the New Global Economy. If you just joined us, you can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts in iTunes by looking for Climate One in the iTunes store. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today.